Hi, friends. We have some exciting news. We've launched a new website. You can now support this show, join our community, and make it possible for us to create Shelter in Place Season 2. Find us at shelterinplacepodcast.info. Thanks for being in this with us. It means a lot. Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Back in March, the idea for a series about the Enneagram began as a joke. My brother David posted the following post on Facebook. I have a request for your next shelter in place. What is the worst Enneagram, love language, Myers-Briggs combination for being quarantined if you catch the coronavirus? Please evaluate all the pros and cons of different options. Not to be outdone, my witty sardonic sister-in-law, Hillary, who you heard from in episode 75, The Helper, responded with this excellent breakdown. Type 6. Their fearfulness, generally counterable by fact, is now confirmed by fact. Their worst fear has actually come true. Type 1s will accept that it is only fair for them to get sick. Type 2s will be lonely and woe is me, but secretly feel relieved to be free from all of the responsibility for others and to be quote-unquote obligated to care for self. Type 3s will use it as a chance to boost themselves on social media. Type 4s will feel special and attention-worthy, like they now have a story to tell. Type 5s will be interested in analyzing the statistical probability of their catching COVID-19. Type 7s will have a blast exploring new connection points and indoor hobbies and distract themselves from suffering and or be grateful it wasn't worse. Type 8s will be pretty frustrated by their lack of control, but will find a way to complain about the system and speak out about injustice. Type 9s, okay, I'm actually stumped here, but I think they'll be fine as always. We all had a good laugh, and I thought Hillary's diagnosis of the nine types of the Enneagram was actually pretty accurate. But as the weeks have turned into months, I realized that David's tongue-in-cheek suggestion was actually a good one. Here we are, in this time when our world is changing faster than we can keep up with it. We're being asked to reevaluate just about everything. In this time of political division and racial tension, we desperately need to understand each other better. And the Enneagram can help us with all of that. It shows us that there isn't just one way to experience this world. There's much dispute over the origins of the Enneagram, and there are different schools of thought on it today. Books about the Enneagram have accounted for over a million book sales. I have read six of those titles, and I'll include my favorites in the show notes for today, as well as some online resources that I found helpful. But now is as good a time as any to tell you that for a long time, I didn't believe in the Enneagram at all. I first encountered the Enneagram in my early 20s. I had always liked personality tests, and I was so gung-ho that I paid for the full version of the Enneagram test. The first time I took it, I was a fun-loving, hedonistic seven. 
A couple of years later, I took it again. This time, I was a world-reforming one. A few years later, I was a performative, high-achieving three. But each time when I read the descriptions of the types, they seemed off. I resonated with parts of them, but not the whole. Perhaps I was just too complex for the Enneagram. In my early 30s, when I was a new mom, our church had a leadership retreat where they divided us up into discussion groups based on our Enneagram type. I was skeptical, but I obliged because I have deep respect for our church leadership. If these wise, thoughtful leaders were standing by the Enneagram, I figured I probably should too. So I took the test once again. This time, I was a nurturing, helpful two. As I sat among the other twos, it was quickly and painfully clear that I was in the wrong place. Listening to the other twos talk about how natural it was for them to anticipate the needs of those around them, I couldn't relate. But I also had no idea where I was supposed to be. It wasn't until a couple of years ago that I revisited the Enneagram once again. I was away on a girls' weekend, and someone had suggested using the Enneagram as a way to get to know each other better. That first night, I picked up one of the books my friend had brought along and read the preface. I was surprised to read that according to this author, the best way to figure out your Enneagram type was not to take the test, but to read through each of the short descriptions for the nine types. I later recalled that I'd been given those same instructions by our church leadership, but had ignored them. So I read. Partway down the list, my face grew hot. And all at once, I knew. It was so obvious that I couldn't believe I'd never seen it before. And I did not like what I read. The description I read of myself was dead on in the worst possible way. This was not a glowing description of my fine contributions to the world. This was a brutally honest assessment of my worst faults. I didn't really want to talk to my friends about it that night, but I did anyway, which in retrospect was probably a mistake. They'd seen me through a two-year period of depression, and it wasn't pretty. All I could hear from them that night was that my deep well of big emotions was overwhelming to them. They did their best to be kind and gentle in their assessment of me, but what I heard in their words was that I was too much, which I now know is the central lie for the Enneagram 4. Even though 4s are often artists and creatives, it was a type I'd always skimmed over before. I didn't think I was a four because I read somewhere that fours hated being normal, that they wanted to stick out and be different. And I didn't think this was true of me. I didn't see myself as some kind of unicorn. And I didn't really like being singled out in a crowd. I didn't feel the need to dress weird or pierce my tongue or get a tattoo. As a middle kid, I spent a lot of my life feeling left out, wanting to fit in with the people I loved most and grieving my inability to do that. What I realized that night with my friends is that a four doesn't just feel different because they think they're special. They feel different because they think they're lacking something essential that everyone else has. Their experience of life is so intense that they have trouble finding people who can sit with them in it. 
The irony is that the emotional complexity that makes fours special is also the very thing that prevents them from feeling as special as they long to be. While healthy fours can be amazing listeners who aren't afraid of your worst pain, unhealthy fours can fill an entire conversation nattering on about themselves, never once pausing to take a breath to ask you how you're doing. Their greatest strength is also their greatest weakness. Their victory is their downfall. As painful as it was to have this harsh mirror held up to me, I'm grateful for it. And also, it's what I appreciate about the Enneagram. Because my experience is the experience that most people have with the Enneagram when they finally find their type. The best thing that they have to offer the world is also their worst. We all have the capacity for greatness, but we also have the ability to become monsters. Sometimes we're both of those things in the very same day. There's enough nuance and flexibility within the model to account for both and to help us see the warning signs when Dr. Jekyll is about to become Mr. Hyde. It was that nuance that finally helped me understand why I tested so many different ways over the years. Each type has a central pitfall, a deadly sin, and the fours is envy. As a 20-something who had not yet come to terms with my tendency toward melancholy, I desperately wanted to be viewed as fun. I envied the seven's ability to laugh their way through life, or so it seemed to me then. I answered the questions not as I was, but as I longed to be. Every number moves to another number in strength. When I tested as a one, a type known for their ability to reform and improve, I was a second-year grad student getting my MFA. I was experiencing success as a writer for the very first time. I'd won my graduate school's short story award two years in a row and been awarded a prestigious teaching fellowship that paid for my tuition. When fours are feeling strong, they move to the healthy side of a one. They can put aside all those big feelings and pour their creativity into vision and action, which is exactly what I was doing at that time in my life when I felt really strong. But each number also moves to another number in stress. When fours are struggling, they move to the unhealthy side of a two, often known as the helper. When I took that Enneagram test as a new mother, I wasn't doing great. I felt like a milk machine whose needs no longer mattered. I definitely did not feel special. It took me years to figure out how to not be the mother I thought I should be, but the mother I actually was. The Enneagram helps us to see how we show up differently in different moments of our life. No one is good or noble all the time. Even the most corrupt and self-centered among us have moments of common grace. I've had many moments in this quarantine where I came face to face with the worst version of myself. I've seen that version in each of my family members too. As a country, we're seeing our best and worst selves during this time, coming to terms with all of the challenges that complexity brings. The Enneagram reminds us that whether we're talking about individuals or a nation, we have a choice. We can keep making the same mistakes when we see each other at our worst, or we can choose to be gracious. When I come up against conflict in my relationships, 
stepping back to look at the situation through the Enneagram helps me to be more compassionate and understanding. I don't agree with everything I've read about the Enneagram, and there are still times when I'll read something and think, nah, that's not for me, which is probably a four thing. But the daily gift of sanity that the Enneagram has given me, the gift that I want to pass along to you today, is that while the need to feel special is a four thing, all of us have something special to contribute, and we need each other. The Enneagram shows us that when we make life all about ourselves, when we focus on what we don't have, it's no surprise that we're miserable. But when we listen before we speak, when we actively recognize and celebrate each other's unique contributions, in those moments, our differences become something to treasure rather than fear. Just as holding a camera can give you an eye to see beauty in the mundane, seeing the world through the Enneagram can train your eye to spot the gifts in the people around you. That kind of vision makes it possible to call out to the best parts of each other, to lift each other up when we're down, to live not in conflict, but community. Before I go, I want to thank several new supporters of Shelter in Place. Tyler and Ann Elliston, you have shown us how to embrace change and uncertainty to pursue the things that matter most to your family. Your entrepreneurial gifts and courage are inspiring us as we follow your lead, and your friendship and support means so much. Ann Lachey, I've lost count of all the times over the years when you've sent kind notes that made me feel seen and heard. Your faith constancy and encouragement are an enduring gift. Emily and Donovan Chandler, thank you for showing my family and me what real friendship looks like. You have seen me at my worst and made me feel special too many times to count. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll subscribe wherever you listen and share it with a friend. If you listen on iTunes, Stitcher, or another platform that allows you to rate and review, leaving a quick note about what you enjoyed helps others to find us and makes this work possible, both now and beyond the pandemic. Shelter in Place is proud to be sponsored by Brick and Mortar, old world style wines with California roots. Their wines can be found at Michelin star restaurants like the French Laundry and Meadowood. You can find their canned wines at Safeway stores in Northern California. Use the code SHELTER when you order from brickandmortarwines.com to get 10% off and support the show. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode, as well as ways to support the show at shelterinplacepodcast.info. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Tamara Kemsley is our associate producer. Nate Davis is our creative director. And Sarah Edgel is our design director. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.